If you have a Bible, turn to Jonah. We're going to go back to Jonah. We're going to read the last verse of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, which is only 10 verses, not very long. Find Amos, Obadiah, and then you'll run into Mr. Jonah. Let's go before the Lord with the word of prayer, and then we'll read Jonah 2. Father, we just ask you, Lord, that you'll look down on us and, and bless us with your presence and open our hearts to receive your word, to receive truths that will transform our lives and transform our character. I just ask that you'll give me words to speak to people's hearts here and to meet needs, to encourage people and speak your truth. And I thank you that you'll do that and you'll meet us in that way and your presence will be here with us and we pray in Jesus' name. All righty, so we got Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 on into chapter 2. And picking it up there in verse 17, it says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And he said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and all thy waves passed over me. And then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet. I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So last week we looked at the first chapter of Jonah. And what we talked about there, we saw Jonah was a type of a mature believer. So he was somebody he'd experienced the blessing of God. He was popular, a respected prophet amongst the people. And like a lot of people that get a few years behind them, he kind of had decided, this is how far I'm willing to go. So he kind of set his limits on his obedience. And he had, like a lot of us, and like Israel did when they went into the promised land, God said to Israel, you've settled on your lees. You haven't done what I've said. You've just gotten enough that you're content. But you haven't obeyed me and taken all of the land. They'd settled on their lees. And Jonah had done that. Conquered some of the land, but he wasn't particularly motivated to go much further. And a lot of times I think that's the way it is with us. You know, we've believed God so far. We've taken holiness and the faith message so far. And we've just kind of said, that's as far as I'm going to go. And we kind of settle on our leaves in that way. So what does God do? He comes and he invades Jonah's comfort zone, breaks into his plans and dreams. And he comes to him in the beginning of this chapter one, and he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and I want you to cry against it. And like we said last week, the next thing you would expect to read from a prophet of God is that Jonah arose and went. Because we would expect an Old Testament prophet of God to obey. But the thing is, Jonah is not a typical prophet that we read about. So he, he has a twofold reaction to God's command to tell him to go. 
The first thing is he says, no. No, Lord, I won't obey. And he says that loud and clear by his actions. Because the next thing we read is he does what? It says he flees from the presence of the Lord. Trying to run from his responsibility that God had given him. Now here's the thing. When your two-year-old does that, when you ask them to go and pick up that toy that they have laying around there and they ignore you and run to another room, do you just say, ha, ha, kids will be kids, you know. I know he'll just outgrow that. That's just a phase. No, we don't do that here, do we? I mean, the world's, that's the way they treat their kids. But if you treat that like a phase at two, guess what the next phase they're going to enter into? It's called the teenage years. And you ask him to do something then, well, instead of running into another room and not obeying you, they drive off into the sunset in your car. <laughs> that's what happens then, right? So God doesn't just look at Jonah and his no and running away from him. And not obeying him and just say, ha, prophets will be prophets. Kids will be kids. You know, Jonah's from that new generation of prophets. You know, he's not like the prophets of old, Moses and Elijah and Samuel. No, he's not like them. Because, you know, I called Samuel. When I called him, he's just a little boy. Samuel, Samuel. And he hears his name. And what did he do? He comes running. Comes running to me. Here I am, Lord. That's what Samuel did. Speak for thy servant hears. In other words, I'm waiting to hear. I'll do whatever you have to say. He's like, no, nope. he's not like that. <laughs> Samuel was a good boy, came running. But these new prophets, Jonah and them, it's a new breed. They question everything I say. Don't want to do it. Oh, see, God didn't say that, did he? He didn't say, now Jonah's just a new prophet. That's just the way it is. Because he never says that whenever he gives a command about his children. No, like we said last week, when Jonah decided that God gave him a clear command, he understood it wasn't any problem because he went the opposite direction, right? Jonah's not going to do that. God did just let him go. He's not like today's parents with their kids, just let him go and, bah. No, he starts throwing things, we said, didn't we? That's what he did. He starts throwing things. It says he hurled a great wind. He sends this storm at Jonah, at the ship, at the sailors, at the sea, and creates this huge tempest. A mighty tempest, it says. A mother of a storm. I mean, this storm is so strong, it's breaking up the ship. It's putting terror in the hearts of these sailors that are seasoned, salty sailors. And so we say, why does a God of love, the God of love, why does he do that? Because he's sovereign, and he expects to be obeyed. And that is the kind of fear and respect a holy God deserves from his creation, and especially his prophet, and especially us, his children. That's the way we should view him. So he's going to deal with Jonah, sends that storm. But the funny thing is, when we read that first chapter, the storm has more of an impact on the captain and crew of that ship than it did on Jonah, right? He's asleep. They got chaos going up on deck, right? And Jonah is down asleep below the ship, oblivious to his surroundings. And we see then, in a lot of that chapter, God in his infinite wisdom uses Jonah's chastisement to bring those Phoenician sailors to a saving knowledge of him. And they do everything that Jonah the prophet, the great prophet of Israel, they do everything that he should have done. When we read that first chapter, they fear the Lord. 
They pray to the Lord. They sacrifice to the Lord. They make vows of obedience to the Lord. We'll do whatever you want, Lord. We'll commit our lives to you. That's what Jonah should have been doing, right? And they realized something. They said, man, our gods are worthless. Our works, all this rowing to try to get to land is worthless. And this God of Israel is the true and living God, and him we will serve. And what an indictment on the Jews that would have been reading this account. Because Jonah's not acting like that's how God is. And the Jews reading this at this time, they weren't acting like that's the way God is. No, it's just these heathen, despised Gentiles. They're the ones that are doing what God's people should be doing. And God's prophet is what in chapter 1? He's cast off the ship, hurled off to the side. He's not the one that's obedient. It's these Phoenician sailors. So he's showing, God's showing Israel what he intends to do in the future through the Lord Jesus Christ. What he promised to Abraham. He said, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And that's what's going to happen. So he's going to bring salvation to the nations by what? Temporarily casting aside his people. Isn't that what we have? So the Gentiles, they're going to believe God. They're going to do what they should do. His people aren't doing it. And he says for us, now that we have received that, we need to fear. Not be high-minded. Not think, hey, we got it made. Salvation's come to us. But we need to fear and continue in his goodness. That's what the Bible says, right? So it's beautifully pictured the gospel is in the salvation of this sailors. And when you read this story, you're like happy for them because they were like innocently caught up in this whole disobedience of Jonah. You're happy for them. But then all of a sudden you're reading that and then you hear a splash in the distance. It's Jonah hitting the water. You almost kind of forget about him, right? So look at verse 15 in chapter 1. It says there, so they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea and the sea ceased from her raging. Well, I mean, that is good news for the sailors, right? The raging sea ceased raging. But what about poor old Jonah hitting that water? What we need to see from all this is that Jonah's doing what he is trying to get away from God, and God is not giving up on him. He is relentlessly coming after him. Jonah was in a terrible spiritual condition at this time, and he didn't even realize it. He's disobedient. He's not praying, not praying like anybody else. And he's the one that should have been praying and he's asleep. But then we'll see in chapter two here, a great transformation takes place in Jonah's life and heart. And what caused that transformation? God. I mean, it's as simple as that. His hand is in everything that's going on here. He's the one that hurled the storm. He's the one that controlled the lots when they cast the lots. He's the one, Jonah and the sailors, he's the one that had him hurled into the sea. That's what Jonah says here at the beginning of chapter 2, right? Has him hurled into the sea. And he, at verse 17, is in control of what else? Verse 17, now the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. He's in control of all of what's going on here. Because listen, if it was up to Jonah, you know what would have happened? He'd have been on that ship and gone to Tarshish and died in his sin and not even cared. He could have cared less. And God's orchestrated all this to bring him back. Jonah is three days and three nights in the belly of this whale or fish. It's not really necessarily a whale, but a fish. And he is happy. 
being there. So some people, they'll try to make out, man, could you picture Jonah in that fish, how miserable it would have been, you know? It's smelly, it's crowded, it's gross. But I'm going to tell you, you don't get that out of when you read this account. When you read chapter 2, Jonah is happy to be alive. You never read a thing about him complaining about his circumstances. <laughs> He's not complaining. He has no requests, no complaints. All he has in this psalm, this prayer, is thanksgiving that God heard his cry for help. Because before that fish came, he was in the darkest pit possible. The fish wasn't Jonah's chastisement. That was his deliverance. Believe me, he's glad to be there. And so look at verse 1. It says there, Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And so what we're going to get from here on out is the prayer. Well, look, his prayer, he's looking back on this experience that he's had once he was cast out of that ship. That's what this prayer is. He's going to pray, and he's recounting everything that happened to him up to the point of his deliverance. So I used to look at it like he's praying all this is happening to him while he's in the fish's belly. No, that's not what's happening here. He's praying about what's happening to him once he hits that water and once he starts sinking down. That's what this prayer is all about. In verse 2, what this is is basically a summary of what he's going to give in the rest of this chapter. It's a summary of the entire prayer. You know, he's saying, I was in trouble. I was afflicted. And I cried to the Lord for help, and he rescued me. And then he's saying again, but it just wasn't any affliction. I was in the depths of Sheol. Not hell, Sheol, where the dead are. He's, saying, he's basically saying, I wasn't just afflicted in a little way. I was as good as dead, is what he's saying there. I was as good as dead, and praise God, he's saying, he heard my cry. And Jonah's like, I am so thankful that he did, because I'd given up all hope. And we'll see that he did. And so this prayer of Jonah, if you read it, it is steeped in the language of the Psalms, if you read the Psalms much. The Psalms, throughout the Psalms, David and others will talk about they're in distress, and they cry out to the Lord. And here's one, Jonah said he cried by reason of his affliction. In Psalm 22, it says this, For he has not despised, speaking of God, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. So what about when you're inflicted? What about when you're in pain? A lot of people we've had in trials here believe in God to deliver them from pain. I was in pain not too long ago. Pretty good pain. And God says when you're afflicted like that, when you're in pain, when you're having mental battles, when you're having financial, whatever your affliction is. He says he's not going to look down and abhor that or not have any pity on you. He says when you cry to the Lord out of your affliction, he will hear. We have to trust he is not going to put us through more than we can bear. And it may seem like it. Jonah hits that water, he's sinking down. That had to seem like an eternity falling down to the bottom of that sea. But God came. It says he heard his cry. We have to believe that when we cry, he hears. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear unto me. Therefore, will I call upon him as long as I live. 
the sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell get hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow, the psalmist says, but then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. And that's what God does. Psalm 120 says this, In my distress I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Psalm 130 says this, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. I'm sure Jonah, he was a prophet. He would have known these psalms. And I'm sure as he's going through this, this is coming back to him. These psalms are coming back to him. The Lord's reminding him of these. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. And if you, O Lord, would mark iniquities, O Lord, who will stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that you may be feared. And so that covers even Jonah. He could have been in disobedience. He knew he was. And he had to remember that, hey, God will still answer me in my distress. And Lord, if you mark all of our sins, no one could stand. But there is forgiveness with you. Therefore, I'll fear you. So we'll see later, even when you're in sin, that doesn't mean it's all over. It can seem like that at times, but it ain't all over. <laughs> Jonah would have known those psalms, and I'm going to tell you what, they might not have meant much to him before, I don't know. Prophets sitting on his leaves, but all of a sudden, I guarantee you, those psalms came alive to him. He's in deep trouble. And I'm telling you, that is when the Bible comes alive, isn't it? When you get in deep trouble, all of a sudden, these scriptures that you could read and just read over, all of a sudden, bam, they mean a lot to you then, don't they? And that's why it's good. I'm telling you, my wife has the Psalms on all the time. She is the living Psalms. But I'll tell you what, when she gets into trial, she can quote those things. I mean, they're coming up. And I'll ask her, hey, what was that Psalm? I can punch her button and their Psalm will come out. But praise God, she, you know, go through trials. That's when you start learning Psalms like that, right? And that's a good thing when you're in a trial to learn those psalms, and even when you're not. And so Jonah starts describing his troubles beginning in verse 3. Look what he says. He says, For thou cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. You think about it. Jonah, you know, he's not on a suicide mission. They throw him in that water. When he hits that water, I guarantee you, he's thrashing around, he's swimming, he's dog paddling, he's doing whatever he can to keep himself above that water, right? But he's saying, when we read that in verse 3, what's happening though? You see those movies, you see waves as they come in when you go to the ocean. He's saying those billows just keep coming over top of him. As soon as he comes up and trying to get air, boom, another one hits him. And he can't breathe. It's just driving him down. You know, you go out, been on the East Coast, and you hit some of those waves sometimes, and it just seems like fun, and a big one hits you, and it's kind of violent, and it just kind of turns you upside down, and you kind of panic for a second, right? Well, you think about it. He said, hey, Lord, you threw me into the midst of the sea. He didn't have, you know, when, when we've gone to the beach, you get one of those waves, you can run on shore, and you'll be okay in a minute. Uh, he didn't have that opportunity. He says, no, Lord, you threw me right into the middle of the sea. I'm all by myself. And these things, these waves just keep coming over me as soon as I think I might have a chance. I don't have a chance. That's what he's experienced. You know, you read the accounts, you read the little kids' books, it's going to mess up your theology. Jonah didn't get swallowed by that fish as soon as he hit the water. Uh-uh. That's what he's saying there in verse 3. 
You cast me, Lord. You cast me in the deep, in the midst of the seas. And those floods come past me about. And all thy billows came over my head. God had a work to do. And so we sang earlier, peace, peace, billows of love. Ask Jonah if that's what he was experiencing. Billows, <laughs> can't breathe, billows of love. I don't think so. But really they were. He just didn't know it. And it did eventually bring peace in his life. But God's got a work he's going to do in his heart. And we're looking at verse 3 here. Jonah's struggling. And he still hasn't prayed yet, has he? But he's coming to a realization that God has justly punished him. Isn't that what we're getting there? He's saying, Lord, you've cast me into the deep. Your billows and your waves are, they're overwhelmingly, but he's not complaining. You get the sense, I'm getting what I deserved. That's what he's saying. So he hasn't prayed, but God's doing a work in his heart. He's finally, Jonah is finally waking up and realizing this is where my sin has brought me. But he's waking up. That's a good sign, isn't it? Because that's not where he started at with old Jonah, right? When he was in that ship, was he awake? What do we read about Jonah? First thing he does is he heads straight below deck and goes to sleep. He's lethargic. Didn't care. Got a storm raging above him. He's sleeping right through it. Not doing good spiritually at all. And I think probably his spiritual decline was so slow he didn't even realize it. Because that's the way it works. That's the way it works with us. And I'm having to take cold showers in my house because we don't have any air conditioning right now. <laughs> anyways, uh, it all worked out. But anyways, when I turn that water on cold all at once, it's just like more than I can handle. But if I turn it where it's fairly hot and then just slowly start it, I can have it as cold as it was at the beginning. It doesn't bother me at all. It feels pretty good. It's incremental your spiritual decline happens. That's the way it works with us. People don't just go from being on fire from the Lord and the next day it's like they don't care. Uh-uh. That's not the way it happens. Incrementally. You know, you start coming and singing songs and you're singing the songs because we all know the words, but your singing is detached. It's not really coming from the heart anymore. That's the way that spiritual decline happens. Prayer just is a quick habit that you do every day because you know you should pray. But your heart's not really in it. You don't spend much time in it. And hearing the word, eh, it's just a routine. We've heard it all a hundred million times, been here 30 years. It's boring. That's how that spiritual decline happens. And so we can be Christians, can't we? we all, we've all been here, let's be honest, right? Where you're living your life as a Christian on autopilot. And I think that's what Jonah was doing, right? He's thinking to himself, man, no one else is going to Nineveh. Why should I have to go? I'm taking a vacation to Tarshish because everybody else is taking vacations. Right? Well, why do I have to go to Nineveh and do the Lord's work? No one else is. And sometimes we feel that way, don't we? God's speaking to us and we look around. Well, no one else is doing that. But I say if you're God's child and that's how you think, guess what? God loves you and he's about to throw you into a raging sea and wake you up. Hopefully, if you're God's child, that's what will happen. But look at here. Verse 4 is the turning point. Because here is when Jonah is fully awake and he sees and he feels the most terrifying thought of all. He said, and then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. So I think at that point he is fully realizing the seriousness of his sin 
and the holiness of God. He's seeing that with his eyes wide open. So it's one thing for him to tell those sailors, you cast me into the sea. It's one thing for him to say that without it actually happening, right? And it's another to fully experience the divine wrath coming over you in waves like that. That's a totally different thing. And he's out there all alone. You picture he's out there all alone. He can't breathe. His life is ebbing away. And there is no one to help. And most of all, there's no one to help like God. God's not there to help him anymore. He's forsaken by God. That's what he feels. That's what he's experienced. That to me is the most terrifying feeling of all. I need help. Jonah's realizing, I need help, but I can't pray. I've cut that off. I'm in disobedience. And he's not praying yet, is he? Terrifying. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he talked about these people, that they put them in these wells. I believe it was these Muslims would take these people and put them down in these wells and seal the tops of them. And they were down there in utter dark blackness with no help, no way to get out, and they would open those things up years later and find these people were just terrified with no help. Could you imagine that? And that's Jonah here, sinking down in these waters. And he's realizing, wait a minute, I've cut off my one source that could help me. God. Terrifying. Yet, When he's awakened to his desperate plight he's in and feels the full weight of it, what happens here? The second half of verse 4, I believe is God gives him this hope. Because look what he says. He says, even though it seems I am cast out of thy sight, no hope. He says, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. So I think then, you know, because if he would have despaired, that would have been it. But yet God gives him enough hope that he doesn't sink in despair. So he knows I'm getting what I deserve. I know I deserve God's judgment. But he says, I'm going to look again towards his temple. And what's in the temple? Why does he say that? Because there he knows there's a mercy seat. There's sacrifices for sin, and there is a God that hears prayer. And he also knows what Solomon prayed, that if my people get chastised, an enemy overtakes them, if they will just come back to this temple and pray and seek my face and repent, God says, I'll hear you. I'll have mercy on you. And so Jonah's taking to himself, man, it just appears the way things are and what I'm experiencing. I've gone too far. I've been cut off from God. I've been cast out of his sight. Can't get any worse than that. He says, yet, he says, I will look. And he doesn't just say this is the first time he's had to do this. He says, if you read the verse, what does it say? I will look again. And that's what will happen with us. We'll have to have that look more than once in our Christian life. Shouldn't have to happen, but yet we were going to have to look again to God and his mercy because of our disobedience. And that's what Jonah says. I will look again. And where else are people in the Bible that are under God's judgment told to look? Numbers 21, Israel, they speak against God. They speak against Moses. And what does God do? He sends judgment into the camp. Many of them die. Fiery serpents start biting those people. And they cry out to God, cry out to Moses. And God tells Moses, you make a serpent of brass, and you put it on a pole, 
and anybody that is bitten. Now, that would have looked hopeless to them. He says, all you have to do is look. Look at my mercy pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll live. And like you used to hear say, they can't be looking at their bite and how that's festering and getting worse and looking at the cross or that fiery serpent at the same time, can they? You've got to look towards my mercy. Get your eyes off this judgment that seems to be coming your way, off these circumstances that seem to be pronouncing against your sin. You've got to get your eyes off of that and onto the mercy of God. And Jesus said in John 3, that's what I'm all about. I'm the mercy of God. We've all been under God's condemnation and judgment. And that's all we all will ever deserve. And most of us will do something today that that's still what we would deserve. But the key is what? You look unto me. Look unto the cross. Made whole. Be saved. Be rescued from drowning. Just like Jonah was. You know, the Brooklyn Tabernacle, they years back had this great gospel song. Brother Calvin would sing that song, and I'm not even going to try to sing it like him, but you ever get a hold of that and sing it? But that song was only a look. And it went, I'll read some of the words. It says, only a look at Jesus. Only a look. Only a look can turn you away from sin. Oh, a look will bring you salvation. Eternal, eternal life to win. Listen, only a look at Jesus. He'll prove a constant friend. He'll bring you peace and comfort and go with you with you to the end. Only a look, only a look, that's all it takes. Only a look can turn you, turn you away, turn you away from sin. Oh, a look will give salvation, eternal life to win. And that's that song. It's just a great song. Only a look, a look of faith, that's all it takes. Right? And you'll see the cross. And when you see that, you'll see, the Bible says, that's where justice, God's wrath, and mercy kiss. And that's what we need. What happened on that cross. So listen to this. Listen to what this man said. Famous man, I'll tell you who he is in a second. I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean, in my own feeling. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness believing that I was lost. You know who said that? Charles Spurgeon. And you know when he was experiencing that? When he was a teenager. A teenager. The weight of sin. He said, I felt like I was going to hell. Despairing, believing that I was lost. He says, I was full of sorrow and wretchedness. And you know what? He was raised in a Christian home. Baptized as an infant. Raised in a congregational church. And guess what he did? He prayed and read his Bible every day. That's the way he was brought up. And yet still, he says, I knew things weren't right. Carried that around. And he woke up one January in 1850 on a Sunday. And he said, I had this deep sense of this need for deliverance from this burden of sin. So there was a snowstorm that day. And he was supposed to be going to church. Instead, he got diverted on this side street, and he's wanting shelter. The, the storm was so bad, so he goes into this old Methodist church. He wasn't a Methodist. Primitive Methodist Chapel, it was called. And back then, the Methodists, I don't know if they still do, they would let anybody preach. They would let, they call them lay preachers, and that's the way it worked. And so this guy's in the pulpit, and here was his text that day. Isaiah 45, 22, look, 
unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Look unto me, and be ye saved. That was this person's text. In his autobiography, here's what Spurgeon said about this experience. Listen to this. He said about this man preaching, he had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. So this guy keeps repeating his text, look unto me and be saved. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. And this preacher, this guy that was preaching that day, Spurgeon says he stopped and he pointed to me where I was sitting, he said, under the gallery. And he said, that young man there, he looks miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, only look, look now. And Spurgeon sitting there as a young man under that burden of sin, he said, I had a vision, not a vision in my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. And now I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. One moment, only a look. It's not fasting and praying. It's only a look to the Savior. Young person, if you're in here today, experiencing, or old person, it works either way. Well, listen, here's his walk home from that primitive chapel. He said, as the snow fell on my road home from my little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told me of the pardon I have found. For I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God. And it says he got home and his mother could see the change in his countenance. And she says, Charles, something wonderful has happened to you. And so here is a sign of a person that has been saved and truly saved. It says for the next months, young Spurgeon searched the scriptures to know more fully the value of the jewel which God had given him. Had a heart and a desire more to know that Lord that had saved his soul that day. That took that burden off. Made him feel clean. And all through a look. And that's what Jonah says. He's sinking in despair. But he said, I looked. I looked unto God in the temple. But maybe you are a teenager that's in here today miserable in your sin. Wanting relief. Only a look at Jesus. We'll give you that relief. Moving on, verses 5 and 6 here, they talk, Jonah, they describe him as he hits the bottom of the sea, hits rock bottom. Look what it says, the waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever, yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption Oh, Lord, my God, everything is totally hopeless as he's sinking down. He's hitting rock bottom, surrounded, compressed by the water. It says, even to the depths of my soul, I could feel that. He's entombed with seaweed around his head as he's fallen in that ocean. And the only one that can help him now as he's fallen down there is the one he's run away from, God. So let me ask you a question. When we run away from God, when he asks us to do something, does that solve anything? Does that solve anything? You know, growing up, all of us kids growing up in my house, we all had our chores to do every week. We had this list of stuff we had to do. And
I thought at the time, I'm thinking, man, this is more than that. I don't know anybody does all these kind of chores every week. But that's, that's the way it was in my house, right? So one Saturday, my dad comes to me, and he tells me, he says, now, you know, you got your list of stuff to do. I'm like, yeah. You're going to have extra stuff to do. Extra stuff. He goes, your mom's sick. And I'm, at the time, I'm 13, okay? My mom was sick, was sick most of her life, okay? I was just like, a 13-year-old, though, you're asking me to do more chores. I'm like, Dad, I think I do enough already. I'm not doing any more chores. That's what I told him. I said, I'm not doing any more chores. She's always sick. He's like, well, you know, you got an option. He said, either you can do the chores or you can find somewhere else to live. And I thought, being a kid I was, I said, I think I will. And I ran away from home. And guess what? Didn't solve anything. Because my dad's requirements weren't going to change, just like God. And all I did was make my life more miserable because I ran away from home, Mr. Bad. Not going to let my dad tell me what to do. Uh-uh. Watch too many Clint Eastwood movies, I guess, up to that point, right? So I missed my house. I missed my parents. I missed my room. And I asked Joel, I said, hey, has dad said anything about me being gone? He's like, yeah, he said you can be gone as long as you want to. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I was more miserable. I was devastated. So let me ask you, who changed? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, it wasn't my dad. My dad didn't change because I'm the one who had to realize that I was wrong and that running away didn't help and I had extra chores to do at home, right? So all it did was just make me miserable. Think about that. When we disobey God and know what we have to do, that's all it does. It doesn't help anything. We're still going to have to come back if we want to get back a relationship with God. He's not changing. We're going to have to do all the changing, right? Now, my dad, just like God, when I came home one day, one morning, act like I need to get some clothes out of my closet. My dad comes in there. And so, you know, he's like, well, son, you know, are you you willing to whatever? Oh, dad, I'll do anything. And so we're crying. At least I was crying. (laughs) But uh, he's glad to bring you back. But he's got the rules. And they were just and fair, just like God's were. So it never solves anything to run away from God. only brings chastisement. It's only going to bring us down into the pit of despair and discouragement. And that's where Jonah was. He'd gotten as low as he could go. And when he hit rock bottom, when Jonah was in that pit, guess what? That is when God sent the fish. Oh, you're right where I've been trying to get you, Mr. Jonah. That's what it's saying there in the end of verse 6. Chapter 2, he says, yet thou hast brought up my life. It says from corruption in the King James, every other translation is going to say the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. And so Jonah, up to this point, ever since he fled from the Lord, he was headed down. That's all you see. Verse 3, it says he went down to Tarshish. And then at the second part of verse 3, it says he went down to the belly of the fish. He's thrown into the ocean, and now he's gone down to the bottom of the sea. He can't go down any further. And so now there's a, a dramatic change. His soul, he's saying, is no longer headed down. He exclaims, my God has brought me up. He's brought up my soul from the pit. Why? Why is he saying that? Verse 7 tells us why. He says, when my soul fainted within me, he said, then I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee and into thy holy temple. 
He's saying, when my soul fainted, what he's saying there is, when my life was just about snuffed out, when my life was ebbing away, fainting away, he's just about gone. And he has his thought. He remembered God, it says. Just about done. He says, oh, no, but I remembered who the Lord was. Who was the Lord? What was it he remembered? Chapter 4 tells us, he says, I know who you are, Lord. This is when he's mad that he spares Nineveh. He says, you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and you repent of evil. That's what Jonah remembered. And when Jonah remembered that for the first time, guess what he does? He prays. Hadn't done that all the way through. And where's he praying from? He's saying, I'm praying from the pit, from the depths of the sea. And that prayer from down in that pit, it rises up before God in his temple. That's what it says. And my prayer came in unto thee, verse 7, into thy holy temple. Monumental. Because that is what God has been trying to get Jonah to do from the first verse of chapter 1. And that is a sign of a heart that has come back to God. True prayer. Psalm 18, the sorrows of hell. This would have been Jonah. The sorrows of hell can pass me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. And he heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry came before him, even into his ears. But how did Jonah know that? How did he know that his cry went into God's temple, that he heard his prayer? Because he can't see that, can he? Nope, not from where he was at, not from down in that pit. I'd say no sooner had he uttered those words when he realized something, man, I'm no longer drowning. I'm inside this squishy temple. All of a sudden, hey, I got a little air, life. God has heard my prayer. And I believe Jonah was very happy. And I think his faith at that point was having a major revival. Right? Because he's talking about this is my God. He's back at this point in verse 7, back in fellowship with the living God. Isn't he? Walking with him. And guess what he's just experienced? His divine deliverance. No, it's in chastisement. This fish isn't. Uh-uh. It's his deliverance. And I'm sure at that point he's looking back on his rebellion and running away from the Lord and the presence of the Lord at this point, seeing what God has done for me, and thought, how foolish. Why did I do that? I can't believe that. Why was I running away from this God? Have you ever had that experience? You know, you're not seeking the Lord. You're doing things you know you shouldn't do. You know, maybe you're not out robbing banks, but you're just not living the life you know you should live before the Lord, right? And God chastises you. I've had this happen. And he brings you back. And you, get, you start experiencing things that you knew you experienced before, but you'd gotten away from and didn't realize how much you missed it. You start experiencing his presence, his fellowship, his peace. Things are different, Right? And you think, man, how could I ever want to experience anything else? Right? Have you all been there? I've been there. 
And that's when it's the song, Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence, we sing this song, is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, Lord, are pleasures forevermore. To give that up, ah, it's crazy. And so look at verse 8. Jonah says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Or those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And so Jonah's thinking, hey, I've seen this in action. I remember when those sailors, they're worshiping their gods. They're not getting anything. They have regard to these vain idols. They don't have the mercy of God until they realize God opens their eyes. Hey, I'm the one that can save you. And then they worship him. And he remembers the idol he had of, of his self-governed life. I'm going to live my own life. That was Jonah's idol. And he's saying, ah, you do that and you've forsaken your own mercy. So he's realizing now, man, it's futile to make anything a God in your life but the one who can truly show you mercy and steadfast love. And so then he leads into verse 9. He says, oh, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed because salvation is of the Lord. And that is Jonah's faith speaking. Because he's saying that. This prayer is uttered from where? Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 2. Where is he praying that from? The fish's belly. And he's saying, I'm going to perform my vows. How could he do that? He ain't going to do that in the fish's belly, is he? So he's saying, I'm going to get out of here. Right? He knows he's going to be delivered out of that fish. So when he's drowning in that water, he is sure that he is going to die. But when he's sitting in that fish now, you know what? He is sure he's going to live. How could he know that? Do fish typically vomit out the things they swallow as food? Not typically, do they? So how could Jonah say that? How could he know that, right? He doesn't know. He doesn't know how he's going to be delivered from this little sanctuary he's in. But he's thanking God ahead of time making vows of obedience that he will. And now he's in this fish and he's sitting there and he's got a new joy, a new purpose, a new hope, and a renewed obedience. And it's all come from God's grace. That's what God's done for him. And so faith doesn't know how God will deliver. Salvation is of the Lord, but faith knows that he will. This man said this, getting out of a hopeless situation is something that faith leaves to God. Just knows that he will. Think about it. The three Hebrew boys, they said, we don't know how God is going to deliver us out of this fiery furnace, O king. We don't know that. But there is one thing we know. We're through with you and your idol. We're not going to bow our knee down to your golden idol, your image. Uh-uh. We do know that. How God's going to deliver us, we don't know. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We're not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Here's what we can know. We can trust that when our repentance is real, our recovery will be real also. And let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, James 5. We talk about James 5 here, right? Is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith 
shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. That is recovery, isn't it? The Lord shall raise him up. Doesn't say how, doesn't say when, does it? It just says he will do it because salvation and healing is of the Lord. But the Lord clearly promises to raise the Christian up. But here's the thing. If you read James 5, James didn't just stop there, did he? He didn't just stop with the Lord shall raise him up. He went on to say, and if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. And so maybe like Jonah, a person sick and on their back or afflicted in some way because of sin, because of living in disobedience. Or maybe it was some kind of dispute between you and a brother or sister. Because he also wrote, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. So what he's saying is there isn't any sin. If this sin brought this sickness, that's not going to keep you from being healed, is it? That's what he's saying. If you've sinned and this has happened, it will be forgiven and the Lord will raise you up. If you got ought with a brother that you know has brought on this chastisement your struggle you're in, you see, get that straightened out and then pray for one another that you may be healed. And so the point I'm trying to make here is with Jonah, his repentance was real. This wasn't feigned. And when our repentance is real, we can know that our recovery will be guaranteed and real, just like with Jonah. That's what we're saying here. And so what a transformation has happened in the life of Jonah. He's gone from chapter 1, from Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and then trouble came. Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was in deep sleep. So we're seeing there this disobedient, sleepy, prayerless prophet. He's gone clear from that all the way over to what we have in verse 9, chapter 2. I will sacrifice unto the Lord with the voice of thanksgiving, and I will pay that that I have vowed, because salvation is of the Lord. That is the prayer and the cry of a man that is now fully restored to God. That's what we're seeing, and that's where God wants all of us to be, where he got Jonah to be. We don't have to go the way of the storm and being hurled into the pit of the sea. We don't have to go that way, do we? Uh -uh. The thing we do know, though, from Hebrews 12 is chastisement is part of the Christian life. That's what we're saying for every one of us. Because he says, if you aren't chastised, you're illegitimate. I don't want to be illegitimate. And I could say I've had been chastised more than once, right? We need to respond when God chastises us. We need to make our path straight like Jonah did. Because if he gets the word, we'll see next time. He gets that word again, he does what he was told to do. He made that correction, made his path straight. Because some, because of presumption, they continue to sin. They don't change and they sink like lead to the bottom and they don't come up. So disobedience, we're not going to presumptuously say, oh, well, God's a God of mercy and all that. He'll chastise me. We don't know that. You don't know that, do you? Because that's why Esau is written right there in Hebrews 12. Don't be like him despised his birthright, it was all over for Mr. Esau. Sought it carefully with tears. So we can't be presumptuous. But I'd say all of us, to one degree or another, that are Christians, if we've experienced what Jonah experienced, and I'd say we can thank God for it, that God took pains to turn us around. He's done that for all of us in here, right? So here's the thing I would say. Has your sin and disobedience brought you to a dark place in your life? Do you feel entombed 
by your circumstances and that maybe God has cast you away? Listen, like I said, Jonah doesn't so much prophesy with words. He prophesies and speaks to us with his life, with his story. So listen to what he's saying. Listen to the prophet Jonah. Let it speak hope to your heart. Because Jonah surely had thought he'd been cast off from the Lord, but then he has that thought. Maybe it's not too late. I'll look towards the mercy of God because God is great in mercy, isn't he? He remembered that God is gracious, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And when he remembered that, he prayed. A humble, repentant prayer like David in Psalm 51. Go back and read Psalm 51. We sing that psalm. He doesn't try to justify himself just like Jonah. He's saying, I've got what I deserved, and I'm just pleading your mercy, God, not my own righteousness. There's nothing in me that deserves your mercy. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge your justice against you and you only have I sinned, David said. And that's what Jonah did, acknowledged his sin. And when you do that, when you hit rock bottom and you cry out to the Lord in sincere repentance, God hears that prayer. He says, I'm there with that humble and contrite heart. He'd broken Jonah down. He broke David down through their chastisement. And that's what he does to us. And then you can look for God's deliverance to come. He'll restore you. That's what he did to Jonah. That's what James 5 is all about. So he may send a fish. He might send a check. He might bring your wayward child back. He might bring healing into your body, whatever it is you need. It could be a lot of different things. But God will send deliverance. We don't know how he'll do it. But if we repented, we know he will do it. That's what we're seeing here. And we can trust him to make things right. And before he does, like Philippians 4 says, we offer unto him while still in the belly of the fish, not knowing how it's going to come, a prayer of thanksgiving that God is faithful. Amen. That's what faith will do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just ask if there's anyone in here, Lord, that's struggling with being away from you, with feeling like they can't get back to you, Lord, that you'll show them that all they have to do is have one look at your mercy, one look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they'll turn back to you in sincere repentance, Lord, and cry unto you, that you will hear their cry and you'll restore them in whatever way they need restored. I ask that you'll speak that to all of our hearts, Lord, and cause all of us to be people of prayer and to seek your face and to live holy and righteous lives. I just ask that you'll do that for all of us here in this church, Lord, and restore unto us the full joy of your salvation. And we trust you that you'll do that. And we pray all that now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I wandered far from the fold where I was saved. It wasn't long till I'd found I'd lost my way. I cried with fear as the night began to fall. One more lost lamb Till I heard the shepherd's call He saw my steps 
as they walked right into the dark. Though I went astray, I never once left his heart. That night long ago, I still recall when I lost my way. Then I heard the shepherd's call. He left the fold to seek out the one that strayed. Left ninety-nine. For there was one to be saved There on that ledge One step would have ended it all I felt a hand And I heard the shepherd's call He saw my steps as they walked right into the dark Though I went astray I never once left his heart That night long ago I still recall When I lost my way and I heard the shepherd's call He saw my steps As they walked right into the dark Though I went astray I never once left his heart The night long ago I still recall When I lost my way And I heard the shepherds call